many of you within the last few years have had to redo your resume? And when you redo your resume, uh, as the older you are, the more jobs you have under your belt generally. And the question is, what do I include in this resume? What do I put in there? So if you're applying for a management position at, let's say, Home Depot or Lowe's, you're probably not going to put when you were a uh, when you did lawns as a teenage boy cutting you know cutting lawns to work your way through college. Probably not going to include that. You're going to include how you were in positions of management in the past. And so you create a resume that says, hey, I'm the guy that you need or I'm the lady that you need in this particular position. Um, you know, if, if you're applying as a pastor, and years and years and years ago I did this, um, but I, I had to create a resume. And there were certain things that I included in that resume, and I needed to show a consistent work uh, history, but there were certain things that I focused on, maybe awards that I got or whatever, and I was applying for a pastorate in Albany, New York. This is way, this is like in the early 90s, guys, way before we came down here. And I, there were certain things I included and certain things that I didn't include. Um, I, I come from a line of pastors, and I didn't put that. But can you imagine if I came from a line of drug dealers and drug lords? Yeah, would that be a good thing to put on my resume as, you know, hey, you need to hire me because I come from this prestigious lineage of drug lords. And they're going to look at me and say, Mike, this is, uh, we don't understand. <laughs> How is this to your credit? How is this a credential, right? Uh, we have in the back table a number of books. And if you look on the back of most of those books, like some of my wife's, they're going to talk a little bit about her. They call that a bio. And on that, if it's a homeschooling book, there's going to be, the, you know, she's homeschooled for like 50,000. Well, okay, no, I'm. No, but she's in homeschooled for you know all of her kids, and for like 25 plus years, she's written a number of books. And so the idea is that with it, reading this bio, you say, "Wow, she probably has some experience and knowledge under her belt. She's spoken at conferences. I'm going to try. I'm going to buy her book." And that's what that's what bios do. If you go to a conference. How many times do you read the bios of the conference speaker, okay? And for pastor's conferences, that's how they took this dinky church of like three or four and built it to 50,000. And you, you're impressed, and it's like, wow, they, he certainly must be a good guy. I'm going to listen to him, right? And this is what bios do. Matthew, in the, in the first few chapters of Matthew, especially chapter one, he gives Jesus his bio. And it kind of reads like that drug lord bio. And you're kind of scratching your head Matthew, I, I don't understand. Why do you include this? I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 2, because as we read some of the, the verses from Matthew chapter 2, we realized that the Magi came from the east, which, by the way, is where Israel had been in captivity for 70 years. Do you remember? Now, there were two places in which they were in captivity. The one I just mentioned in Babylon, and that's where the Magi come. Where was the other one? Where were they captive for over 400 years? In Egypt. Now, do you remember in chapter 2 when, when God reveals to Joseph, hey, Herod's going to kill you. Where does he go? To Egypt. And so I think Matthew purposefully, he's showing some irony even in chapter 2. He does it even more in chapter 1. But he's showing here are magi 
from the very place, apparently, in which the Israelites were held captive for 70 years. And where do they, where, where do, when Herod is seeking Jesus' life, where does Joseph take them? To Egypt, where they were in slavery for over 400 years. And we get this feeling of irony in the very beginning of Jesus' life. When the Magi come, who do they say that they are seeking? They go to Jerusalem, assuming, my goodness, I mean, if a king is going to be born, where do you think he's going to be born? He's going to be born in the capital of, this, of Israel, right? Jerusalem, that's where they go. And they talk with Herod, like, oh, bad idea. But they do that, and God is sovereignly superintending what they're doing. Who are they seeking? They're seeking the king of the Jews. Now, Herod hears Messiah, right? If you, if, if you look there in chapter 2, very beginning. And so he goes to the scholars of the day. Hey, where's the Messiah supposed to be born? And they tell him, Micah 5, 2. Supposed to be born in Bethlehem, Ephrata. I mean, that is the city of David. That's where he was born. And so they then go to Bethlehem. And because that's where the star leads them. But Herod gets his clue from scripture. They're seeking a king. So what Matthew does is throughout his gospel, he is number one writing to Jews. He uses this phrase kingdom, kingdom of heaven rather than kingdom of God for that reason. There's a number of different things just in how he translates certain phrases and how he communicates. You can tell he is writing to a Jewish or Hebrew audience. And so his purpose is to prove to these Jews, to these Hebrews, that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the king who has come to this earth. And what's the Messiah supposed to do? Well, they thought the Messiah was supposed to set up a kingdom here on earth and eventually spread his peace throughout the world. Well, that is what Jesus did. He spread his peace or is in this process of spreading his peace throughout the world, but he didn't do it anything like the, the, the religious experts of his day, and many of the people believed. And so Matthew's job is, I need to show people the Messiah, but a different angle or a different face of the Messiah than what they're expecting. Because Jesus didn't come as a political ruler. He came as, he came as a spiritual ruler, a spiritual conqueror. So how did he do this? So Matthew decides to start off in Matthew chapter 1 with Jesus' bio. Now, a great place to start, especially for Jews, is, hey, tell me your lineage. I want to read about your lineage. And so we have here a focus. Now, I'm going to read just two passages, just a, a, a verse here. <laughs> Excuse me. In verse 18, it says, this is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. I'm going to come back to that lineage, but after the lineage, this is, what, this is what Matthew launches into. And I want to show you this because there is a sweet transition, and, and we begin to understand why he does what he does in this genealogy, and that is so important for Matthew, and we'll find out why. But he says here, this is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. Now, most people reading that would pause, okay, yeah, so... Guy meets girl, fall in love, have a baby. That's how Jesus was born, right? Not exactly. And he says this, his mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, 
she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to, now listen to this, this is key for Matthew, public disgrace. Because this is how people would view Mary. Wait, wait, wait. Is, is she pregnant or is she just gaining weight? You know, never a thing you want to walk up to a lady. I'm sorry. So what month are you in your pregnancy? And she says, I'm not pregnant. Bad idea. Bad idea. Never do that. Guys, never do that. Especially we, Anyway, so let them offer that information. But they're looking at Mary. She apparently, just how we see the flow of the story, she apparently has come back already from being with Elizabeth for about three months. Do you remember the angel Gabriel comes to Mary and says, hey, you know, I know you're a virgin, but God's grace has come upon you, and you're going to bear the child, Jesus, and he's going to rule in King David's place, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. How's this going to be? You know, I'm, I'm a virgin. And so the angel explains. And she then goes to be with her cousin Elizabeth for about three months because Elizabeth was in her sixth month. And if you do the math right, so John is born about three months later. And so she comes back. So she is at least three months, if not more, pregnant. Uh, first time mom probably shows somewhere in the fourth or so month and people are beginning to wonder, what's going on? Why is she pregnant? Let's see, gone three months, comes back pregnant. Hmm. Joseph sees this, and you can only imagine that he's going to ask her, what's going on here? And she tells this story, no doubt. And, and, and you can feel like, do I believe her? If you were in Joseph's shoes and you hear this story, it sounds outlandish. You're a virgin. You, we know you're a virgin, and now you're pregnant. And, hmm, God made you pregnant? Mm. But you know what? Being a godly man, I'm, I'm not going to broadcast this. Why? Because of the potential for public disgrace. And that's key here for Matthew. Because the story unfolds, listen to this, it says in the next verse, verse 20, but after he had considered this, that's Joseph, he considered putting her away privately and not publicly, not broadcasting it. An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Now, this is one of four dreams that God gives Joseph in this whole process of Mary's pregnancy and then after the baby's born. Joseph, son of of David. Interesting the angel would point out that. And Matthew highlights this. And why do you think it is? Because just like in chapter 2, Matthew's goal is, I need to tell you, the audience, the readers, this is the Messiah. He is king of the Jews. So we immediately find out from the angel, he reminds Joseph, Joseph, son of or descendant of David. Do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her <clears throat> is from the Holy Spirit, just like she told you, idiot. No, she didn't say he didn't say that, I'm sure, but you kind of feel like that. I told you so, right? 
And he hears the angel telling him this from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you're to give him the name Jesus, Iesus, which comes from the Greek verb sozo, or soter, savior, and Jesus then means the one who saves. It is the Greek word. Now, he was not given a Greek word, all right? Someone whose name is John, that we would say in English, but he's Hispanic. He was probably not named John, but Juan, right? And so, but we, we, we hear the, the, the Greek word, and yeah, like Juan Diego, right? Juan, so he, uh, he then tells him, this, this word Iesus is Greek for Yeshua or Joshua. He's going to save his people from their sins. That's the focus of his name, Jesus. Now, if you were Joseph and you're thinking, okay, this is a really special baby, and you get this feeling, oh my goodness, the Messiah. I'm going to be the dad of the Messiah. I'm going to call him Jesus, Savior, from their sins. What? Wait, wait. You, I mean, Savior from the Roman Empire, Savior from oppression, just like the oppression they experienced in Babylon, the oppression they experienced in Egypt. He's going to come and he's going to rescue his people from oppression, physical, political oppression, right? And, and there's just the gears in Joseph's mind while he's asleep dreaming. This is grinding. You can feel it. He's going to save his people from their sins. Wait. Okay. And, and I'm sure he's kind of just wrestling with the purpose of Jesus, his, his life mission. You know, God sent Moses as a deliverer. God delivered through Moses. But Jesus is Savior. Jesus himself will do the rescuing. God's not going to work through him. He will become the rescuer. It's like Moses having the ability himself to part the sea, walking through it and just by his own power parting the sea. But that's not how it happened. He just extended a symbol, the rod in his hand, and God, Yahweh, parted the sea, a wall to the left and a wall to the right. And this provided the deliverance of Israel out of Egypt. Moses, God, Jesus is far greater than Moses. He will do the rescuing. He will do this. And we know he's going to do it. How? By the cross. By the resurrection. Now, Joseph doesn't understand this. He's going to save his people from their sins. Not exactly um, the bio that you would expect. And, and so Matthew needs to get into this. And so he makes a decision. I'm not going to start with the story here. I'm going to give more bio background. Because here's Mary and she is open to disgrace in giving birth to the very Son of God. And, and, 
and, and the shame that could potentially be associated with at least the, 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 what people would cast her away, the shame they would cast upon her. She, she would have no reason to feel shame because she knows the truth. I haven't slept with a man. I didn't even sleep with Joseph. The Holy Spirit, if you will, impregnated me, she's thinking. Matthew makes a decision. I need my readers to realize that this bio, that there's, Jesus has a bio that's far more developed. And I want to share that because it's a little bit like saying, or a little bit like a pastor writing in his bio that he comes from a lineage of drug lords. And the shame that would be associated with that. Or people who had no education whatsoever, but he does have education. Or anything that would work against people looking at Jesus and saying, wow, isn't he amazing? Isn't this guy? He's, he, and, and put him on a pedestal to the point where he becomes unrelatable. But see, this is why God became man, to be relatable. Do you see? And so Matthew developed something. Here's what he does. Since Mary is the mother of Jesus, he focuses on mothers, four of them in Jesus' genealogy. Now, I'm only going to read a middle portion. I'm not going to read the whole genealogy. That's 16 verses, or actually, I guess, 15. We find that he is, his genealogy starts with Abraham, the Hebrew. So we know he's Jewish. It includes David. So we know that he comes from a lineage of kings. But then Matthew also, if you look there in verse 12, he talks about the exile to Babylon. I mean, why would you want to include that, Jesus? He's kind of giving a little bit of backdrop for the irony that develops in chapter 2. Where did the Magi come? See, that's where they come from. They come from Babylon. They come from the east. And they are the ones. They're the ones that recognize that Jesus is the king. Nobody else in all of Israel, except maybe Joseph and Mary. That's it. The Magi from a foreign land. But these mothers, we find there in verses 5 and 6. Excuse me, starting with verse 3. Judah... So he goes to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, and he says, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Tamar, long story that I'm going to keep super brief, the Reader's Digest version of a Reader's Digest version, or some would say, I guess, the Cliff Notes, right? What, what term do they use nowadays? Cheat, cheat, whatever. He says, okay, Tamar was Judah's daughter-in-law. But Judah's son, while married to Tamar, died. And another son was given through what they call levirate marriage to be able to prolong or, or to uh, extend the, the, the husband's name. And so his, one of his sons is given, and God takes his life. And so Tamar says, look, I need, um, I, need a, 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 a represent, I need someone from your line, one of your sons, to be able to prolong, you know, extend my husband's line. And so Judah says, well, my youngest is too young. Wait for him to grow up. 
and the time was going on, and Tamar's thinking no. And so Tamar poses as a prostitute. And Judah, you know, you kind of, what are you thinking, dude? Judah finds her as he's traveling, and he sleeps with her. And he's the one who now promotes, prolongs the name of his son. Wow. Is that not mixed up? And so there is this sense of disgrace that hangs over Judah. And it says, Perez and Zerah's mother, emphasizing mother. You don't find the word wife or woman. You find mother four times. Because it's Jesus' mother, verse 18, his mother Mary. And so the next one we find is verse 5, Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz. Remember Ruth, right? Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. So Boaz then gives birth to Obed. But Boaz's mother's name was Rahab. Do you remember who Rahab was? Rahab was what? What was her p- uh, profession? Yeah. <laughs> she was, yeah, a businesswoman. Okay, gracious, so gracious. She was a prostitute. Now, she didn't do it just one time like Tamar did. That was her profession. She was a prostitute. But when the Israelites came to um, came to Jericho, she hid them. She hid the two spies that were spying out the, the city, and God blessed that of her. And she says, the fear of Yahweh, his covenantal name, had spread throughout Canaan. The fear of Yahweh has fall upon, fallen upon our people, and we're terrified of you guys. Now, Israel is about two million plus, two and a half million of them. They're about ready to cross. Well, they already have. They've crossed the Jordan River. And they're now in Canaanite land. And Jericho was a Canaanite city. Now, because of the good that Rahab done, you can tell there's something that has changed in her. She now identifies herself not as a Canaanite any longer, but as a Jew. Another mother with a sense of disgrace over her in Jesus' bio. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Remember the book of Ruth, four chapters of how Ruth marries Obed and now gives birth, excuse me, marries Boaz and gives birth to a son by the name of Obed. And in that story, Ruth, though she is a Moabitess, wow, Ammon and Moab come from a lineage of incest. Lot's two daughters slept with their dad in order to promote their seed of their father. Their, yeah, their father. And so th- there's just this grace that hangs over Moab to the point where Moses said, anyone who is a Moabite cannot enter into the temple of God to at least the 10th generation. And Moses, excuse me, David was born within those 10 generations. 
because Ruth made this clean break. You see, Moabites worshipped Molech. Molech, in the, the cult practice of the worship of Molech, you would sacrifice your child in the fire. And it was such a blight, such a disgrace. God said, absolutely not. I do not want you mixing with them. But see, in the very first chapter or two, Ruth says, My, your people to Naomi, who was a Jew, your people are now my people. Her husband had died. Naomi's husband had died. Naomi being a Jew from Bethlehem, she being a Moabitess, she turned her back on her lineage. And she identified now, your God will be my God. And there is this transfer of allegiance. And because of that, that repentance, that turning away, that's why David is even allowed to be in the temple of God. Now, there is this, because she's a Moabitess, there's, again, there's this sense of discredit and disgrace. Matthew's not done yet. Matthew goes on, and now he talks about David, and in David's moment of weakness, and I don't want to just say, ah, you know, he's just a little bit weak. David, if you follow it, David, by 2 Samuel, end of chapter 10, he's conquered all of these surrounding nations, and he kicks back, and he relaxes. And he doesn't go out to war like, like most kings would in the spring, and he just decides to stay back. And that is where, from his palace, Ruth, he sees who? Matthew doesn't tell us. He just says, the wife, the uh, Solomon's mother and Uriah's wife. She had been Uriah's wife. And David stumbled into adultery and in a way ended up having Uriah killed. What a disgrace upon David. And yet Matthew highlights this. Why would he choose four mothers to focus on? He might as well say, yeah, he comes from a lineage of drug lords, right? But this is to Jesus' credit. It's part of his credentials for people recognizing he's the Messiah who's not going to set up an earthly political kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom. And the focus is not conquering peoples, but conquering the devil, conquering the flesh, wiping away sin, transforming people, restoring them. He comes from a lineage that has disgrace all through it. Though he himself never sinned to allow disgrace upon himself, that's his bio. And that's what we are, that's what Matthew chooses to call in and bring in so that we are able to see who this Messiah is. His lineage is disgraced. But that actually lends credibility. To him being Savior. Because, see, that's the focus of why Jesus came. Now, I don't, need, I don't want to stop there. We're going to continue. We need to ask the question, why would Matthew, of all people writing to the Jews, why would he be the one that would choose to focus on this idea of shame infiltrating Jesus's, excuse me, Jesus' bio? What's the, per, why, how are you, Matthew, excuse me, Matthew, why are you focusing on 
shame, I understand the mother of Jesus, Mary, had this sense of shame upon her from society, not because of what she has done. Why would he be the one that God specifically chose to write that? How many of you have seen the TV series, The Chosen? You probably know the answer then to that question. And who Matthew is, his other name is Levi. He was a tax collector. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 9. In Matthew chapter 9, Matthew, Levi, eventually gets around to his personal testimony of how Jesus called him. Now, I do like the way that Dallas Jenkins chooses to unfold Matthew's character. I, I like the way he, his, he, he creates Matthew with a, a certain type of personality. Um, he, he's on the spectrum. And so consequently, there are certain things that he's not real good at, but certain things in which he's excellent at with details. And this is a guy who, and, and he doesn't spend a lot of time sharing his personal testimony. But it is the very reason, I believe, why God chooses Matthew to be the one to understand and want to develop this idea of Jesus' bio and the disgrace from his that's over that lineage. See, you see, in, in Israel, lineage was everything to you. Who were you a descendant of? That was a big deal. And we understand he's a, he's a descendant of Abraham. Great, so he's a Jew. He's a descendant of King David, for, uh, at least on Joseph's side, maybe even Mary. So why do you want to include this? Jesus was birthed in society's view of shame on Mary. Even 200 years later, in the Jewish Talmud, it's called the Babylonian Talmud. From Babylon, over 500 years before Christ, there are certain traditions, oral traditions that were passed down. And not just from that time, but throughout those hundreds of years, there were traditions. There were stories that were passed down. When you read the Babylonian Talmud, that was actually penned around 200 AD, they talk about Mary. And they talk about the disgrace upon her. But they tell the story very differently. They say she slept with a Roman soldier. There's no evidence of that. They wrote it. Matthew chooses to focus on this because, you see, that's where Matthew lived in shame for years and years, church. We don't know how old he was. Let me read his personal testimony, Matthew 9, verse 9. As Jesus went on from there, he had just healed a paralytic and forgiven his sin. And that was a big deal. That's the focus. Jesus doesn't just heal, but he forgives sin. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. I appreciate Dallas Jenkins kind of filling in what he believes was potentially Matthew's exposure to Jesus before this moment. And I appreciate that. 
And, and especially when he has Matthew there, when Jesus heals this paralytic and says, your sins are forgiven. I mean, who has the power to forgive sins but God alone? Well, Jesus, so obviously Matthew leaves everything and he follows Jesus. That's his testimony in one verse. He doesn't elaborate. He could have, I mean, he's the author of this gospel. But see, he's not the one that he wants to focus on. Who is? See, it's Jesus. He goes on in verse 10. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples. So the Pharisees see this party going on, apparently approach the building and because parties generally would be on the roof, and the way you get to your roof is through, you go on the outside. There's stairs that lead to the roof. Generally flat, enough area, have tables set up, people are served. And Matthew probably had a large home. He was a wealthy guy. Tax collectors were viewed like dogs in Israel because they cheated generally. Not only that, but they would, even if you were poor and you owed money, he had to, he had to get that money somehow because his job depended on it. That's why he was hired. I got to get the money from everybody. And people looked down upon tax collectors. So tax collectors and sinners, they were the scum of the earth, at least in Israel. And so Pharisees probably approach the building. They see people coming down the steps, and they, some of his disciples are there outside the house. And he, they stop him and says, hey, what's going on here? When they saw him, they asked the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? That's a pretty good question. They were afraid if you associated with a sinner, their uncleanness would make you unclean, that their sinful lifestyle could somehow affect you. But you know what? Jesus doesn't wait for his disciples to answer that question. Do you see that? Who does answer their questions? It's Jesus. And he, maybe he's coming up and down. Maybe he's going up or going down the stairs. If he's going up, he turns around and he realizes, I, I, I can see what's going to happen here. And I'm going to answer for them. And so Jesus says this. On hearing this, Jesus said, is it not the healthy who need a doctor? Excuse me. It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. So he's really starting to get at the heart of the Pharisees who think themselves to be so good and pure and righteous who do all of these sacrifices, but there is very little mercy and love and compassion in their hearts. They're hypocrites. He goes on and he says, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So where am I going with, with all of this? Obviously, Matthew has a heart for those with a disgraced background because that's who he was. And when Jesus said, follow me, Jesus forgave him of all of his sins. 
What a powerful testimony. Someone who was so despised in Israel, Jesus decided not only to forgive his sins, but let's have a party. Now, maybe that was initiated by Levi. And Levi wanted to invite Jesus, and I, I bet anything Jesus was excited. Here's an amazing opportunity to rub shoulders with other tax collectors and sinners. Now, I can only imagine a conversation that Jesus had with his disciples, because they were probably thinking the very same thing that the Pharisees were. You know, hang, hang on, Jesus. I get it that you want to include Matthew in our little entourage here. Okay, I, I don't necessarily understand it, but we're going to a party, and there's a bunch of them now. And there's, a, and there's probably prostitutes there as well, sinners, and all the different types of people, like drug lords, right, involved in that party, coming to it. And the disciples probably had a question before the party, Jesus, help me understand. And Jesus explains to them somehow and envisions them Guys, this is why I came. This is why I need you. Because these are the people that we are called, that I'm called and you will be called to reach. The tax collectors, the sinners, what society deems as the scum of society. That's who we're reaching. We're reaching those who are lost in their sin. Those who are sick. And so Jesus' answer to the Pharisees was to help them see as the Messiah, the one who just forgave the paralytic sins, right? This is why I came. I'm seeking those who are willing to understand that they are completely disgraced in their sin and are willing to look to God so that I can rescue them Jesus, who will save his people from their sins. That's why I'm here. I came to rescue sinners, not those who view themselves in their own merits, seeking to obey the law as righteous. Because there is none righteous, no, not one, Paul tells us. Can I just say, maybe right now you're thinking, okay, that, that's, that's a great focus in what, Jesus, in what Matthew's doing and how Jesus lives this out in welcoming and forgiving sinners. And <clears throat> Matthew was discredited, if you will, because of his past, and Jesus forgives all of this. But that's his past. You know, maybe some of you, your past before you came to Christ was lurid, and it, you would say, yes, I understand what, what Matthew's trying to say here because, man, that was me. And Jesus came and forgave me, and he rescued me from that. But maybe some of you are saying, but you know what? I've made a decision to follow Jesus. And, and, and there's something different. I know there's something different. But I walk around daily with this sense of guilt and shame. Not so much because of my past, but because of my present. 
and, and I, I don't want to stumble into this sin, and I don't want to react this way to these situations, and yet there is something inside of me that pulls me in this direction. And you would have to say, as a Christian, does Jesus truly forgive that sin? Even though next week I may find myself stumbling into it, and I'm going to repent, and I just feel, and, and the things that come out of my mouth I'm sh ashamed of. What about that? That's not in my past. See, for some of us, that's all of us. All of us, to some degree, that's our present. And it's not just our testimony that Jesus rescued us from. What about that? Romans 8.1 says that there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And if you've placed faith in Jesus, he didn't just come and forgive you of your sins and then say, now that you're in Christ, watch what you say, watch what you do, because I forgave you then, but don't cross that line again. I mean, he does say, don't sin, but as a fallen creature, there is that temptation and that tendency, though I don't walk in that old nature. I still carry that old nature baggage. And I can turn to it every now and then. And I'm ashamed of it. We, we, we begin to think in our mind. And Paul makes it very clear, but there's no condemnation. He makes it so clear there's no condemnation for those who are now in Christ. Paul a leader in the church, has a lurid past. He actually fought so hard against Christianity and Jesus himself that he put Christians in prison and he presented as much evidence as he could so that they would eventually die. That was to his discredit. Okay, but that was his past. Show me someone that God used like Paul still wrestled with that. John does that, by the way. I'm going to share three scripture passages with you before I conclude. I want you to turn to Luke chapter 6. And in Luke 6, Jesus is sharing a really hard truth. He is talking about those who want to follow him. They've got to eat his flesh and drink his blood. What is up with Jesus? And many people became offended by that. Whereas the one who would be humble of heart would recognize, wait a second, Jesus speaks truth. And I don't get this. They would approach him, Jesus, help me understand. What do you mean by this? But instead, their reaction was very much antagonistic towards Jesus. Not inquiring, not being teachable. And it says in this chapter that many of Jesus' disciples at that time turned away and no longer followed him. Jesus follows this up with a question. Verse 66, John 6. From this time, many of the disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. 
Simon Peter answered him. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. I eat whether we understand them or not, right? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Way to go, Peter, right? Good job. Good answer. And he was determined, I'm going to follow him no matter what. Let's fast forward a few years. The very night that Jesus is betrayed, they're, they're, they're having the, the, last, the, the, uh, the Passover meal, what's commonly called the Lord's Supper or the Last Supper with Jesus. And in that, after that meal, he says that tonight you will all be scattered like a sheep is scattered from the shepherd. And Peter, you will deny me. And Peter's like, what? No way. I would never deny you, Jesus. John chapter 18, verses 26 and 27. Peter is in the courtyard of the high priest. Jesus has just been arrested that very evening. It's late. And it says, one of the high priest's servant, servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him. Peter, he's saying to Peter, didn't I see you with him in the olive grove? Verse 27, again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, a rooster began to crow. Three times Jesus said, you'll deny me before the rooster crows. Luke adds one more sentence after this. He says, and Peter went outside and wept bitterly. I want you to imagine the shame that Peter's experiencing right now. He's been following Jesus for three years. We don't just believe. We know that you are the Holy One of God. We know you're the Christ the Son of God. We know, we know, we know, we believe. I'm willing to follow you to death, Jesus. And when the rubber meets the road, I'm out of here. And the shame, as a follower, ardent follower of Jesus, the shame is overwhelming. He can't stay there. He leaves, and he leaves, but goes out into the courtyard, into the darkness of the night where he's well hidden. See, there's a fire in the courtyard, and outside of the courtyard, there's no fire. And in that darkness, he weeps because of his shame, because of how he betrayed knowing Jesus. And the shame, the guilt that he's experiencing, he wept bitterly. See, that's the type of shame that even Christians, those that Jesus has rescued from their sins and washed them clean, that we can still experience. Did Jesus reject him? In that moment, right before Peter leaves and heads out into the darkness, another gospel says, and Jesus looked straight at Peter. Can you imagine how Jesus, Jesus is, he's not feeling hurt 
He's not feeling rejected. His heart goes out to Peter. Peter, I, I did warn you. I want you to know I love you. He, he can't say this. He's too far away. He's being tried before, this, before Annas and Caiaphas, the high priest. And then Peter leaves as Jesus, Jesus saw it all. And he goes out into the darkness. And he just gets swallowed up in the shame. Is there any hope? How can Jesus, who dies on the cross, then rises from the dead, how can that Jesus, Savior of the world, bring no condemnation to Peter and still choose to use him, and church, use him powerfully, extensively? Why? What happens? I want you to now turn to the very last chapter of John. I'm going to be brief with this. You know the story. The shame that he experiences, Peter, in verse 15. Peter is out in the water. They're fishing all night, catch nothing, just like when he was some three years ago, out on the lake, catching nothing, and Jesus says, put out into the deep water and cast your net in. And when he does, in Luke chapter 5, he hauls in such a catch, and he falls down, and he says, Lord, depart from me. I'm a sinful man. There is something, though, in this occasion Peter has grown up a bit. And instead of wanting to, Jesus, depart from, go away. I, I'm, otherwise, he'd have to jump into the water, and he didn't want to do that. Jesus, I'm a sinful man. You don't want to be near me. What does Peter do on this occasion? The Bible says that when Jesus called from the shore and says, hey, guys, cast your net on the other side of the boat. And these are fishermen. They're just thinking, they? Yeah, right. Yeah, you're not a fisherman now, are you? Yeah, we're, we're talking 10 feet here. We're going to catch a lot of fish. Thanks for nothing. But they do it, and there is, they catch 153 fish like deja vu. What does Peter do? Guys, you guys go ahead without me. I, I, I need to do some thinking before I see Jesus again like this. He takes off his outer robe and he dives into the water and he swims so hard he beats them to the shore. He wants to be with Jesus. And Jesus, after the meal, asks him, he says, Peter, Simon, son of John, verse 15, do you truly love me more than these? And this is Peter's response. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my lambs. He didn't say, yeah, right. He didn't say, mm, maybe you should think about that answer one more time before you really answer, answer me. Let's try to answer truthfully now. He didn't do that. He says, okay, that's what I needed to know. You love me more than anyone, more than anything. 
Now, Peter, don't forget the mission I called you to. That's why you followed me three years. In that courtyard of the high priest, I didn't look at you with a scowl in my eyes and on my face and say, so much for you. I had a lot of hope in you, Peter. I guess not anymore. That wasn't as hard as all, at all. And for you, as a follower of Jesus, that is not the heart of Christ for you at all. And when we are caught in our sin and in our shame and just saying, Jesus, come and rescue me, and we're repenting before him again, he asks you, all I need to know is this, do you love me? Do you love me? And we would answer, well, that's why I'm down on my knees right now in tears. Trying to deal with this shame again. And Jesus says, okay, get up. See, you're forgiven. Now go and serve my purposes in this generation. He commissions you. He says, go, regardless of the past. You're this vessel that we looked at last week that he's in this process of refining to be useful and holy for the master. And so that's what God did with Peter. He, he needed to reemphasize to Peter, it's, it's done with. All of that shame that you're dealing with, no more, Peter. I break those chains and that, that bondage that you have created for yourself of this shame, and I'm breaking those off of, breaking all of that off of you. That's the Jesus that Matthew introduces us to. As a people, we find ourselves in disgrace. Even Jesus' lineage was filled with it. But you see, those became his credentials. As king and as savior that would rescue his people and rescue you from your sins. That's who this Jesus is. And it's not just your past, it's every day. The power of the cross is made available to you to wipe out all of that sin, all of that shame. That is the power of the cross, but it's also the power of the resurrection. And this new life and this recommissioning over, I've still called you, I haven't given up on you. Let that truth resonate today in your heart. The babe that was born in Bethlehem as Savior, as Messiah, as King, washes away all of your sin forever and ever. And the shame, he breaks it off of your shoulders. Can you stand with me? I just want to, and maybe we could turn the lights out and someone could go back there and do that. And as, we, as, as I just close in prayer, I want to call you out of that shame that you're experiencing today if you are. And I'm going to do that by the truth of the cross and the resurrection. Let's do that. Father, Jesus, I want to personally thank you that you rescued me, Mike Curtis, from his sin. And you have chosen to rescue me every day. You choose to forgive and remove and break the shackles of shame constantly. Because this is who you are and this is why you came. 
I'm sure Matthew didn't just have a lurid past of betrayal being a tax collector. But Father, he still wrestled with sin. And you constantly rescued him. Today, whatever shame lurks around the corner, whatever shame hangs over us, I just ask you, Father, break through that with your light. Break through it with your power, with the truth of your forgiveness every day and the promise that you would not only forgive us and break off that shame, but invite us to follow you and to be used by you no matter what. Father, I just ask, let those truths resonate in our spirit. Don't let the devil lie to us any longer. You're unworthy. Look what you've done now. You think Jesus wants to use you? You think Jesus is going to forgive that again? Again, really? And I just ask you, Father, speak the truth of your word. There is thou therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is why he came to rescue us, not just from our past, but our present. And he invites us to the future of following him in close, intimate relationship. And I just ask you, Lord, that that truth resonate in our spirit today. Father, thank you for sending your son Jesus because you so love the world. Thank you that you stepped down into my corruptness and my brokenness and my shame and you shouldered that every day of my life. Thank you, Jesus. Your love, your mercy knows no end. Thank you, Lord. Wherever there needs to be healing in hearts right now, please speak that healing. In the powerful name of Jesus, Savior, amen.